Welcome to the Modern Art Notes Podcast. I'm Tyler Green. This week, Mark Bradford. New Mark Bradfords are featured in two exhibition on either side of the United States. The Wadsworth Athenaeum in Hartford is presenting three works in its latest Matrix exhibition. The largest of them is Pole Painting One, a 50-plus foot long painting that Bradford says starts with his admiration of Solowitz's work. It's up through September 6th. In Los Angeles, the Hammer Museum is offering Scorched Earth. The exhibition, which will be on view through September 27th, comes with an unusual, interesting catalog that examines many of the issues Bradford's work has addressed. It was edited by Connie Butler. On the second segment, we'll re-air a segment with Sarah Oppenheimer from 2012. At the time, Oppenheimer had just fulfilled several commissions at the Baltimore Museum of Art. Those works are on view now. Earlier this month, the Wexner Center for the Arts awarded Oppenheimer a Visual Residency Award to realize a site-specific installation that will respond to the museum's Peter Eisenman design building. But first, Mark Bradford, after the break. The Nasher Sculpture Center in Dallas presents a major exhibition of six dynamic and colorful installations on a monumental scale by preeminent British sculptor Phyllida Barlow. Featuring large-scale works created specifically for the Nasher Galleries, the works playfully tower over visitors, creating multiple compelling environments. See the London-based artist's exhibition, Phyllida Barlow Trist, from May 30th through August 30th. For more information, visit nashersculpturecenter.org or call 214-242-5100. Plaffer Art Museum at the University of Houston presents Sound Speed Marker by Teresa Hubbard and Alexander Birchler. In this critically acclaimed trilogy of video installations and related photographs, Texas and its associated cinematic imagery serve as platforms for reflections on filmmaking itself. Also at Blaffer through September 5th, a collaboration by Henning Bowl and Sergi Cherupnin combines sculptures, drawings, and sound into a multidimensional storytelling platform. More at blafferartmuseum.org. On view now at the Modern Art Museum of Fort Worth, Framing Desire, Photography and Video, showcasing over 40 recent acquisitions alongside iconic photographs and videos from the permanent collection. Includes works by Larry Clark, Philip Lorca de Corsia, Reniki Dykstra, Debbie Grossman, Candida Hofer, Robert Maplethorpe, Gordon Matta-Clark, Nicholas Nixon, Catherine Opie, Arne Svensson, and Frank Thiel, through August 23rd. Also, Focus, Mario Garcia-Torres, through June 14th. For more information, visit themodern.org. And we're back. Mark Bradford, welcome back to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Thank you. I feel like I'm a little bit of family. First time you're nervous, the second time it's like, oh, yes, it's family. Well, you are. Let's, let's start with the exhibition of your work at the Wadsworth in Hartford. It seems to have started, at least the, the, the work seems to have started, with your interest in Saul LeWitt. And you've engaged with his work a couple of times now, including for a 2011 show at the MCA Chicago. You and I have talked uh, before on your first time on the show about your kind of self-immersion in the history of 20th century abstraction. But what about LeWitt's work in particular made it something you wanted to engage with more? His logic, the logic and the idea that it didn't have to be his hand. I thought, hmm, I'm so hand and LeWitt was so like he built these structures and then someone else could kind of replicate them. And I just thought, God, that's really interesting. So it's almost like his his logic for how to do a LeWitt almost to me felt like this intense abstract painting. And I just thought, and it's these wall drawings, sort of these kind of ephemeral but not, it always goes back to that kind of logic that LeWitt always had. But also, in a weird way, his trust in the, ex- the people that executed. I, I don't know if I could do that. And he just allowed other people's hand inside of his work. And I often wondered where the hand ends and the mind begins. So it's just something I played with a lot. And I've always thought about this kind of dance between the two. For me, LeWitt's work, like, like Matisse's, for example, embraces, consciously embraces a certain decorative tradition and riffs on it. And LeWitt, kind of his riff on it is, is what I think you just described. Was addressing a decorative tradition interesting to you, or was that not really a factor in, in your interest in LeWitt? 
it was this relationship to the architecture and to the logic, not so much the decorative tradition, because I knew that the work wasn't going to be decorative. I knew it was going to be too heavy. I, I couldn't. I just knew it in my head. I was like, eh. It's more addressing kind of this site specificity, working with the architecture and this temporalness, kind of working it out in my head before and having it executed. So I, I, I kind of worked it out and how I was going to material do it as well. So before I got there, everything was actually worked out. What was very almost mathematical. What combination of color and what to put paper on top to turn it this color and what. So it was, it was almost like an equation, almost like a math problem. And then when I went there, it was just about executing it. It, it looks from the pictures. I haven't I haven't been to Hartford in, in in a little while, but it looks like from the pictures you figured out what the maximum square footage you could cover on that wall was. Right, exactly. <laughs> That's exactly. What, I walked it off and I said, okay, I can make it this big and this far so that it actually acts like more of a of a painting. I didn't want to go the complete overallness. Because I, I felt maybe it would feel, it would, I don't know, if, it was so material, I was thinking it might feel like wallpaper. It wasn't really, I wanted to give some air around it, that air around it. Kind of like a frame. Yeah. It's like a white went, drywall frame. Right, and, I, and using the architecture to frame it. So to make a piece 50, 55 feet long, it's somewhere in that ballpark, you did a kind of studio mock-up and pictures of that studio mock-up. I did the same. Um, the same. I did the same piece on the wall in the studio. Oh, really? Yeah. The exact. Well, because the pictures in the the Wadsworth brochure are are, I guess, in progress, and and we'll have images of of, of that on on manpodcast.com. So you've worked big before, of course, and in this case, you had the the size and proportions of the finished piece kind of dictated to you by the available wall and 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 what you just described. Did you learn anything from the studio study slash mock-up that translated into making the piece at, at, at the Wadsworth lessons? I did. Another thing that I was really interested in, I love this kind of very graphite drawing that's in the, one of the, the ways that I really love is just graphite. Gra I think he's a number two pencil. Or, and I just love the way it just is graphite. What I learned doing the wall drawing was that the speed that I pulled off the twine would decrease or increase the, the size of the, of the mark. So if so I wanted a wide from the surface of the piece. Yeah, that's what I learned. So if I wanted a wide color, it was almost like a wide brush, I would have to pull it slow. If I wanted a very, very small brush stroke feeling, I'd pull it very, very fast. And I played with the lift. I have like these big cherry picker lifts. So I play with them, I'd get in the list and I'd tell them I'd kinda of grab one and I'd play with the speed. So it was it had to do with the speed of how I would take off the material that really made the work. So you built it with a layer of paper, then twine, and then another layer of paper on top? Yeah. And the air in between each one of the layers. So if you left a lot of air, you know that it would come off in wider gaps because of the air. So you kinda of play with the air bubbles and you play with the speed. So the air bubbles and the speed really dictated what was going to be available on the surface and the length of time it was drying. If it dried out really, really dry, 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 almost every line would be very, very, very narrow. You couldn't get wide brush strokes. If it was a little wetter, you could pull it off slower and more would come off. So really, that's what I learned by doing it in the studio. So when a painter puts oil or acrylic on a canvas and builds up a bunch of it, you get a small amount of physical space between the paint and the other paint. Think, think of, a, of Jackson Pollock's 1943 mural, which was recently at the Getty, for example, might be a, a really dramatic example of that. Do you think of tears in paper like you created by pulling the twine across the surface of the object? Do you think of tears as kind of having any of the physical space-making quality of paint, or is it totally different? Maybe, because I'm constantly trying to find the spaces in between the layers, as if it was sort of, you could actually bleed from one color to another. It's, acrylics, not as much, but definitely oil paint. There is this kind of 
bleeding through and the relation, it, one color informing another color to make a third color. Whereas with paper, you have to build them in. You have to, it has a lot to do with when you take the paper out of the water. The longer you leave it in the water, the more pulpy it becomes, which means there's more light. It breaks apart, so whatever's underneath is going to bleed through a little bit more. Leaving air bubbles, the sander, you just, you're constantly trying to get them to have a relationship, like North and South Korea. <laughs> you know, it's funny to hear you describe the process and to describe kind of being driven across 55 feet of painting. It kind of sounds like you're making a three-dimensional version of Jack Whitten or Gerhard Richter's squeegee painting. Yeah, maybe. Do you think of them that way? I love, well, you know, I love Jack Whitten. I love Gerhard Richter, so... Those are all, that would be all kind of people I admire. And I'm just, yeah, I'm, I'm constantly trying to get, I tell you this one thing, Tyler, that I absolutely realized about me or my work a few years ago, and I just, I happened to stumble on it, and I don't know when I stumbled on it, but it actually is true. When, when I first started, and I started using the end papers, these tissue papers, they were very translucent and they were translucent and they were very easy to use. And the translucentness, well, obviously there was a bleed from what was underneath because it was translucent paper. When I started using billboard paper, billboard paper is dry and it's five or six layers. So to get the layers, I simply put it in water. Now, when I put it in water, I, I wasn't even thinking about it, but when I put it in water just to make it come apart it must have felt comfortable to me and I never being my hands being in the water must have felt comfortable and I mean from being a hairdresser you're all your hands are always in water so the separating of the paper in the water in the liquid from in my head I think I started liquefying the paper so when I started to reach for store-bought paper in order to make it more pliable I put it in the water so somehow in my head, I never saw it as paper, which to me would be very cold, opaque, and unyieldy. But putting it in the water, in my head, I just thought it was liquid color trapped in a binder. So I never, I never really saw it as paper. I always, always got to wet it. I have to wet it and it's pliable. So I kind of got around the whole idea of this unmalleable, unforgiving, opaque material by wetting it. And I've all had these huge vats, and I, so I, it never felt threatening. But I never thought about it until very recently, like, oh, okay, that's why I put it in water. I never, it doesn't, it becomes malleable, pliable, forgiving. This bleeding, it bleeds through from one layer to another. You can kind of... Let's move across the country to Los Angeles, and you're showing entirely new work now at The Hammer. Was showing, and, and this is kind of a theme for you in this calendar year. We're, we're, we're taping this in July of 2015, of course. You've shown new work in museums three times this year. Is that your idea? Is that an idea museums bring to you? Oh, no, 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 no. Nobody ever brings anything to me. I, no, no. I will not work that way. When I was a hairdresser, you could bring me a picture and say, make me look like that as an artist. <laughs> uh-uh. <laughs> <laughs> uh-uh. All that happens is, is that generally someone will approach me and say, I really would like to work with you on a project. And I just knock around in my head or if I have something I'm interested in or a way of working, it starts out of a conversation. Usually it starts out of some form of research. It may start site to that site. I may do research, historical research and find something, or it's just an idea in my head. Shanghai was, I was really interested in the port and the history of Shanghai. I thought you I was showed talking. earlier this year at a museum called the Rockbund Art Museum in Shanghai. Correct. And I, I located the work in there and the research, and that work came out of this port and this kind of multiple history stacked on top of each other in Shanghai and the Los Angeles show at the Hammer Museum called Scorched Earth was, it came out of, I think, sort of the early AIDS epidemic how we dealt with it in popular culture and also materially the 92 riots because after the riots and the cyclone cyclone fencing and plywood barricades went up around the burned out lots 
that materially gave me so much of what I started to work with when I was out of grad school in late 90s. So that, again, was very L.A.-based, the comedy piece, Eddie Murphy, kind of based on Eddie Murphy. I remember seeing him at the amphitheater when it was called the amphitheater in Los Angeles. That's a video and audio piece, yeah. Yes. So, and the Wadsworth, again, was, yes, definitely site-specific. I was stretching myself in different ways. It's kind of doing a site-specific work, one in, in Asia and one locally. I had fun. I maybe mean, I worked on all of them three years, maybe. Well, let's talk about some of the work at The Hammer. And I'd like to start with the painting that, for me, is, is the one the show kind of revolves around, and that's Lights and Tunnels. We'll have an image of it on manpodcast.com. But for our purposes here, I'll describe it as an abstraction that seems to be anchored by a black ribbon that runs from the upper left of the canvas down to the bottom of the painting and then kind of back up toward the center right. And to me, and I'll let you shoot this down in a minute, (laughs) to me, I read it as the 405, the major freeway that runs down the west side of L.A. County, the divider between the wealthy white neighborhoods on the ocean side and the neighborhood south of downtown to the east on the right-hand side again. So before I keep going, I should ask if you're okay with kind of that. that well, I tell you, they're all based on like tributaries or, or lines that connect. They're more bodily. I mean, they were, it's interesting. Now, this is interesting. I remember when I made that painting, it really felt like you were looking at cells under a microscope and that microscope. And that's where I got some of the imagery from is actually when, a, when HIV comes in contact with the cell and how it morphs. And that was kind of, the imagery that I was working with when I was drawing these pixel dot paintings or laceration paintings or whatever. But that one I did, I remember thinking that I needed to put a line of demarcation on top of it. So it looks, they're very built up almost, if you ran your hand over it, almost felt like a, a mound. They're very thick. I don't know what I was thinking of, but I do want it to, I wanted to kind of interrupt and the 405 absolutely interrupts. I don't know if that was in my head, but the interruption of the pictorial surface was definitely in my head. Yeah, that cell thing is, is, is definitely there too. And one of the ways it manifests itself is through these, and again, excuse, please excuse my shorthand language, but kind of these starbursty forms that bring to my mind kind of a flashpoint. And for me anyway, looking at the work, it was possible... Well, I read the starbursty shapes as specific flashpoints, and and you know we, there are flashpoints that seem to be in Watts, where where Rodney King was beaten up up north of La Crescenta and in, in off the 210 in, in, in up, up toward the foothills. Here's kind of the epicenter of the AIDS epidemic in in L.A. and West Hollywood, where you have a starbursty shape. How how and why are the starbursty shapes, which well you just said it, it, it points to something that, that, that uh, an epicenter of something or a, when bombs go off, they make these kind of epicenter of explosion. It points to a specific place where something intense or something is defining that's where it is in the body or it has to do with amping up an area, of even, of, even of a pictorial surface, of kind of bringing attention to that area, changing the changing the surface energy of the of the canvas like creating different intensities on the surface it does and and it's it, it's it kind of interesting to me that it, the, the different intensities you get are related to at least to my eye actual geographies and their their size and their enormity or or more in certain geographies their their smaller area mm-hmm. yeah it, i mean my work has so much to do with geography and kind of kind of sort of economics and kind of how the city is divided up and what they even, you know, some parts of the city are more hot. They'll even use that, these terms. Oh, that's a little, that part of town's a little too hot. This is a little too, but cool at all. I mean, these kind of, so I wanted to play with temperature. Most of the underpainting is red. There's a lot of red, a lot of heat basically. You mentioned geography, and one of the things you've done a lot in, in your work, and I think most, most especially here, is kind of lay sociological systems, if that's a good phrase, over that geography, and then to kind of posit to the viewer how things might move through both the systems and that geography simultaneously. 
And so obviously these are kind of issues and themes that you've engaged with in your work for a long time now. But what got you thinking about those spaces, whether it's the relationship between Watts, Rodney King, and the post-Rodney King verdict riots, or HIV and the way it's spread in L.A. County. What got you thinking about those things and putting them together in, in, in work this year? Because oftentimes when I'm doing a show, I will do some type of research, uh, just kind of history or sociology or kind of just re- po- po- the political environment at that time. But, you know, I've done very little shows or very little work in Los Angeles, which is kind of funny because I live here. So I said, oh, I'm going to do a show with the Hammer. That's going to be great. And then I started doing my normal thing, the research. And I said, oh, my God, wait a minute. This is a hot. I don't even have to do any research here. <laughs> I'm like, I'm acting like I don't live here. Oh, I got to go. I got to go online. I got to, I got to go order books. I got to oh, wait a minute. Wait a minute. No, I don't. So it just realized that the show was kind of laying there waiting to happen for years. And I just kind of picked it up. And so it really just came out of the fact that it was Los Angeles, that I did grow up in Los Angeles, that, that these ideas are already circulating and playing in my head. I'm sure a lot of these are, a few of these ideas I can even pick up from the survey show. I can see a little bit of the Pinocchio on fire at the end moving towards this and a couple of the paintings. So it's always been there. So I just picked it up and made a show. I was like, oh, okay. These systems that you're presenting at the Hammer are are really open. There's no suggestion that they end within the work or that they end at the edge of the canvas. There's there's this very, very strong suggestion that they just keep going and we're looking at little parts of something. This, to me, is maybe the most Terry Winters-like work you've ever made. His systems are really really closed and and, and are completely self-contained. Is he someone you've been looking at lately? Not lately, but I like Terry Winters' work. Yeah, I just like yeah, I like his work. Yeah, I do like his work. These works at the Hammer are all 2015 works. It's pretty hard not to think of 2015 at this point, and think of the way state-sponsored violence committed against black males has been the major news story in America right now. Did or how did the events of 2015 kind of work their way into the work? You know, it's funny. I, when I started, I suppose I was making the work in 2014 and maybe 2015, but when I started, I was really thinking about the body being a vulnerable vessel and how HIV kind of made the body even more vulnerable. And all of this triggered out of when Ebola started and the rhetoric around the Ebola virus, we don't want them here, we don't, we're pulling our children out of school close the borders, close I said, oh my God, this reminds me of like early 80s. So I was really thinking about how propaganda deals with race and disease. And uh, the, the, I did the, the, the AIDS map very early in my studio. As I kept moving through the work, I, I probably opened it up to just a black body and propaganda. And but No, but none of this really had started yet as much there were, there were a few incidents but not in the like what we're seeing now and by this you mean ferguson baltimore ferguson baltimore so it's amazing florida yeah it's amazing so i i the work was done and, and and so but it re because of the political landscape i do believe that the work recontextualized itself before i even got it to the hammer i mean i may have made this, this eddie murphy piece and and sort of about the, the clown, the one part, the monkey says, I can't breathe, I can't breathe, and it's absurd. But if you think about a person who lost their life who couldn't breathe in New York, so it recontextualized itself. But that was just, I guess I was mining this work at this time. So I, I'm letting it unfold to see what I feel about it, really. And, I can, and it's also true, certainly, that when issues, whether it's, you know, epidemic disease or violence happens in America, it almost always happens more intensely and in more challenging ways in black communities. Yes. Yes. And so that's in some it, ways an overlay is it overlays. So I I think it's very interesting actually. I think the the overlay that's happened with this particular show and some of the ideas I 
I was working a year, two years ago, thinking, playing in my head. So, but I think it is interesting. I think these conversations are, are necessary. And as an artist, it makes good material for me to, to, to dip in and out of and to think about. And Well, I, you know, that brings me to an interesting, at least to me, question. You know, we've reached a moment wherein, and, you know, we've reached it both slowly and quickly, I mean, slowly over many decades and, and quickly over, over the spring and summer, wherein more non-black Americans are paying attention to these issues, particularly violence in the black male body, than ever before. And a number of writers, I'm thinking of like Jelani Cobb or Ta-Nehisi Coates, maybe, maybe Daryl Pinckney too, have emerged as kind of major voices in, in a really kind of interesting way, voices that aren't usually included in American discourses about sociology or policy. And I found myself, as I often am at these moments, kind of amazed that artists aren't included in this dialogue about societal issues as much as kind of other intellectuals. And so here we have a subject, violence against black men, state-sponsored violence committed against black men, that you've been engaging in, in your work you know, for 10 years or more. I mean, I'm thinking of a piece like, well, the piece after which the Hammer Show is, is, is named, Scorched Earth, which is from 2006, I think. It's at the Broad Art Foundation. I assume we'll all see it this fall when the Broad opens. Is that a role that interests you, or is that beyond what interests you? No, it, it is. It, what interests me is if a conversation comes out of my work as an artist, sure, it interests me. It interests me. If, if I was approached to do something as an artist, Sure, because there, I think as an artist, you have to allow yourself the freedom and your viewpoints will change. So I, for, it's material for my work. It, it may also have a sort of resonance within a societal framework, but at a, I give myself complete license to be free and to back up and to make a right turn and a left turn. So if it would, if something would approach, and I thought it was interesting, sure, I'd be part of the conversation. Often, nonprofit leaders are included in these conversations in ways that artists aren't. You have just started a nonprofit. <laughs> what what is that nonprofit? And aside from the obvious programmatic elements to make up any nonprofit, is having the capacity to have a different kind of voice something that was maybe yes. part of what yes. interested you and yeah. informed you. I felt it was the I felt it was a, a platform more that I could have let me see. I felt like around education and contemporary ideas, I felt like it was an arena that was kind of made for these types of conversations and they were also much more collective. I mean it's a foundation. It's not just me the artist talking. It's like we as a foundation believe in this, so it's more collective. Maybe it's a good spot for you to describe what what the new C3 is. So art art and practice is a private operating foundation. We have basically two arms. We have the contemporary art space, which we've partnered with the Hammer, and and we show contemporary artists in the Jekka Crosby, Charles Gaines. We will have. A lot of just contemporary artists, and also we work with foster youth, <clears throat> foster youth education in that area. It's very close to Crenshaw High School and also to a middle school, which have disproportionate numbers of foster youth, 30, 40, 50%. And we do comprehensive educational intervention services at a resource center. We have a resource center. English, math, we're developing more of the educational part. At the moment, we're partnering with the Right Way Foundation, who's a job placement and mental health provider, and they're all on the campus. So it's foster youth services and contemporary art in the Mert Park, which is a historically black neighborhood in Los Angeles. So the, from what I've read about the nonprofit, its programmatic goal is in part to present visual art as something worth considering either professionally or intellectually every bit as much as biology class yes. is. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, should, what Contemporary ideas, I find, are ideas of our time 
and I find that they're the most interesting. I find that they're the most engaging, the most interesting, the most current. So why shouldn't we have a space that is simply about that? That's what I call the, the art gallery, the, the exhibition space. It's just an it's, it's just ideas, a space of ideas. Artists are working through ideas, and so they should be valued as much as anything else. There's a John Dewey quote I, I read over the weekend in Nancy Prinsenthal's biography of John Dewey that comes to mind. And Dewey, Dewey said, if all meanings could be adequately expressed by words, the arts of painting and music would not exist. Absolutely. Absolutely. Let's turn away from the most, most recent work for a moment and, and look at a piece you made for LAX, the airport. Oh, yeah, that was fun. <laughs> it was uh, fun. I mean, it was fun. <laughs> It was a work titled Bell Tower, and a big, we'll have images of it on the website. It's a big, abstracted, sports arena-style scoreboard that hangs over a security screening airport area in the International Terminal at LAX, the Tom Bradley Terminal. It's kind of a reminder that our public spaces have become our most manufactured spaces, whether it's at a hockey game or a security line at an airport. What took you from accepting a commission at LAX, which I'm guessing was pretty open-ended, Mark, are you interested? Yes, I am. Okay, then what? And how did you get to the idea or issues that you wanted to address there? Airports are weird spaces. <laughs> Airports are weird spaces, but TSA is even more weird. And I thought, really? You're really, really? I can, like, I can go for that one. You know, the most uncomfortable space. Surveillance, awkward, Big Brother, control. And so I just basically kept going. Control, people being controlled. What controls popular culture? What are the what are the symbols? Okay, technology. Well, what's the modern day Coliseum? I just kept calling Coliseum. Well, what's in the middle of a ah, bell tower? You know, a jumbotron. Like it just went like pop, 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 pop. And then I wanted it to feel like something that was ancient and modern at the same time. So kind of like LAX itself. <laughs> right. And I also wanted something to because I, I kind of went to the airport and matched the screen sizes that they have all around the airport. So I made the screens the same size and then there's nothing on them. There's just these plywood barricades from all over the city that I collected for the last three, four years. But it references propaganda and advertising. The same things that they're in Technicolor and 3D, mine is, mine is like after the apocalypse. So I, I wanted that. I wanted also a material that's global. People understand, oh, I know what that is. Like, we may not in our country put it on plywood because it's too expensive. We put it on corrugated. But I know what that stuff is. That's urban detritus. That's, and I wanted to have kind of a Stonehenge feel or something built. And then in, in the middle of it, you kind of look up into it as if you can just, it's very dome-like, almost very quiet underneath it. It's full, kind of designed it where the sound empties out when you're standing underneath it. So you have this kind of moment in the airport where everything is busy and noisy, and underneath it's just quiet. I wanted to ask about that part of it. So when you, you also, as, a, as, as somebody who, you know, is obviously either in a security line or goes from another port of the airport to, to, to go look at it, you can look up and sort of through it. So in addition to the sound element you mentioned, there is kind of a, a visual, you know, you can kind of visually enter the middle of the, the thing. Yeah, it's almost like it's emptied out. And it, it could have not a religious connotation, but a, a meditative, it, it, it's domed. It could be a dome for a mosque. It could be a mosque. It could be a quiet space. It could be a this kind of place of gathering and quietness. I wanted to really, most of the world is religious in some form or fashion and worship something somewhere, you know? So I wanted to kind of play with the idea of gathering and quietness and contemplation. Not necessarily, not necessarily I do it, but I wanted to, I wanted to, it's international, everyone's very uncomfortable, and it's so other. Everything in the airport is so polished, so perfect, so on time, and every airport looks alike, and there's just this thing, like, what the hell is that? Little bit shantytown feel, 
class-wise, you definitely know that this wouldn't be at the higher end of the food chain. I didn't really do anything. I gathered the paper. I just pulled off all that I could and cut it up. I didn't design each panel. And, and, there's, some, and spray, there's some graffiti, but that graffiti was underneath all of the like as soon as the plywood barricades went up, I think people graffitied them in the paper paper. So when I pulled it off, there were some interesting little words that got in there. And I was like, oh, they can stay. So from the beginning of the piece, being able to look up and inside it was as important as the yes. outside? Two different relationships, happen? yeah. One kind of about pop, uh, about, the, about the oversaturation and then with the piece, the, 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 the failure of technology. And then the inside, more of a private space. We mentioned earlier the work you debuted earlier this year at the Rockbund Art Museum in Shanghai. And so we'll have some images on the website. There are three really big paintings among, among sculptures and some other things. But the paintings the museum describes as works inspired by your visits to Shanghai and the vast and fast-moving changes that have happened there in the last five or so years. Could you talk through the idea of taking what you observe in a visit and, and a series of visits in a city you, you don't know, as, as you know, L.A., for example, and synthesizing it into an abstraction. What is it your hands that move through that? Sure. So for me, it just depends. It, it, sometimes I grab architecture. Sometimes I'll grab history. So, but this, I, I was fascinated with this deco building. It was really interesting. I think it, it was actually the... It showed all of the exotic animals from all over the world. So what, that's kind of a natural history museum. It was a strange natural history museum of oddities from all over the world. It was a very strange place that this, I can't remember the person who built it. But it was a building on four floors. And when I had visited, I've been a couple times, but they had covered up the architecture a lot. So I began to think of this, architecture as if I thought, well, hmm, there's so many histories in Shanghai and one's there like laying right on top of each other. So in my head, I saw all four floors and I, I, I uncovered the whole building. I, I pulled it back to the original architecture of the building. So open up the lights, open up everything. So there was back to the original architecture. Since it was four floors, I built one painting that you, if you stack the painting on top of each other, it would go back kind of in history to me, in my head. Like, so I started very urban, and it seems like as I got to the top floor, it, it went back to kind of a Chinese landscape. It's like an archaeological dig where you dig and you find one Rome and they dig down a little further, and it's another Rome and they dig down a little further. So I just thought, oh... Well, let's let's just do it the other way. Let's stack, let's stack the urban and the and then the region, the agricultural, and then the, the sort of Chinese landscape, and then these kind of buoys that float at the top, as if it's you turn the whole thing into the port in a way. Were you looking for a building to use as a metaphor? No, that just happened to be the Rockbond Museum. <laughs> I might have done a totally different work if it was another, but that happened to be the museum. And I found it interesting. I walked around a lot. I went to all the markets, all the flea markets, all the map markets, all the, I spent a lot of days there. I would go to nightclubs. I would go just to the markets again. And I would, I never go with quote unquote handlers. I go with myself. I can figure it out. Find somebody to take me around, and I find another person to take me around. Then I go to nightclubs, and I go here. Oh, well, where's the best part? Oh, you should go here and see that. And I, just, I bounce around. But I did that in Europe for so many years. I can find my way. Probably a little different being a really tall dude in China, though. Yeah, but, well, you know what? People are always willing to talk to you. You can, you know, oh, yeah, basketball player. Oh, listen, where do you think I can go? Oh, go around the corner. Oh, there's a the basketball. You know, you can play with it. <laughs> you can definitely play with it. One of the things that in kind of looking through these three groupings of work, both in person and, and digitally is, I mean, they're all obviously Bradford's, but the palette, the colors in all of them are, you know, wildly different. Are the colors you're using for the Shanghai pieces coming out of the landscape, coming out of 
something you see, or is it just something that happens to be in your studio and that's no? Well, the Shanghai works. I was actually reading a lot of kind of I don't know. I was reading like a lot of the history of Shanghai and, and, and sort of the ag- agricultural landscape, and there were these beautiful kind of drawings that I was really responding to. The color palettes, these old map drawings, and I pulled the colors from these old maps. So they're kind of burnt greens and very old feeling colors. They all came from they all I, they all came from these old maps of the region that I was looking at. And do you match those colors with found paper you have? Or I do the you... best I can. I, well, actually, I'm, I, some I have some found paper and some store bought paper, so I do match them as best I can. But I don't I don't ever custom make paper. Did you find, uh, you know, did you pick up any found paper in Shanghai? Do you work at, are you interested in that kind of granular level or is that too? No, that's, no, I don't do that. I just like, I happen to, no, I just go around and I look to see how they glue their advertising to the wall. Do they glue it to the brick? Do they glue it to the, and I always, every city I always want to know, I was, oh, so when you have a, and it's, oh, no, it's not allowed. So you don't see it. And in other cities, oh, yeah, yeah, we put it on the telephone poles, or we put it on the corrugated, or we put it here. So I like to know where informal advertisements are and how they're allowed. Now, I didn't see many in China. Or they're plastic, big plastic billboards above your head, and that's it. Like, there's not that much informal, because it still is communist. There's not a lot of informal net markets going on. It's pretty regulated. Yeah, I, I I I remember the same thing. <laughs> yeah, you're not going to find a lot of plywood barricades with a bunch of, you know, not even political posters. I thought, oh, maybe we can find I can find rally posters or something. Well, Mark Bradford, thanks so much for sharing all this with us. Super great. Good to see you again, or good to talk to you again, Tyler. See the signature work of Andy Warhol's career exactly as it was first exhibited in 1962, along with iconic screen prints and drawings, illustrations and illustrated books in Andy Warhol, Campbell's Soup Cans and Other Works, 1953 to 1967, now on view at the Museum of Modern Art in New York City. There's also live music and refreshments on Thursday nights, conversations about modern and contemporary art, and Yoko Ono's participatory white chess set, all outdoors in MoMA's idyllic sculpture garden throughout July and August. Find out more at MoMA.org and plan your visit today. The Hammer Museum presents Mark Bradford Scorched Earth, the artist's first solo museum exhibition in Los Angeles. Comprising 12 paintings, including a large-scale work on the Hammer's lobby wall and a sound installation titled Spider-Man, this new body of work refers to formative moments in the artist's life and contemplates the body in crisis. Scorched Earth brings together Bradford's artistic practice, social activism, and history as a native Angelino. On view June 20th to September 27th, 2015. Visit hammer.ucla.edu. Welcome back. Next, we'll re-air a segment with Sarah Oppenheimer from 2012. Earlier this month, the Wexner Center for the Arts awarded Oppenheimer a Visual Residency Award to realize a site-specific installation that will respond to the museum's Peter Eisenman design building. When we taped this segment, Oppenheimer had just fulfilled several commissions at the Baltimore Museum of Art, works that are on view now. Typically with your work, a viewer has a lack of knowledge, a distinct lack of knowledge about where they are actually looking. Their eyes are telling them one thing, their brain is telling them um, another. How do you go about the process of starting to create that effect? Is it with drawings on paper? Are you working with architectural modeling? Where does the effect start? I think I, I don't actually think of the pieces in terms of a singular effect. I think of each project as having a set of potential problems And those problems are defined by things that might be looser than an effect. So I think of things such as an occluding edge, which is an edge that blocks something else, for example. 
But as you move around an occluding edge, that edge is constantly changing. And perhaps the best way to think about that is if you're moving around a cylindrical column and you think about where is the edge that's blocking your view around that column, it basically traverses that entire column depending on where you're standing in relationship to it. So one of the things that I'm always thinking about is where is the person standing? How is the person moving? And what are the conditions by which you can control what is seen or not seen in that path of motion? And particularly, I think, to answer your question about the, the project in the West Wing, one of the great challenges in that project was to gain, it's not actually symmetrical, but to gain a set of a, a regularity in the division of space that is apparent to the viewer. The only way to do that was actually to make a highly irregular geometry that, um, that, that appeared regular in reflection. And the way that that was developed was through a set of um, actually computer scripting, which allowed both myself and um, other people in the studio to think about how, how we could sort of simply look at a reflection and then change a piece of geometry or let's say an edge and then how that would quickly update visually and we could understand that reflection again. Does that answer the question? Yeah. I mean, you, so it, it, it sounds like you start with the physical space itself and then advance that you don't have ideas or goals before you're confronted with a physical space or a work of architecture. Oh, so that, okay. Let me just back up then. There are definitely plenty of sort of general rules in advance of a specific place. And those rules might have to do with how you can compress depth of field, how you can create a reflection that behaves within a certain type of constraints, how you can um, collapse different color temperature by bringing together different types of architectural space. Those rules, they're, they're not so much rules as they are kind of basic parameters and those basic parameters then do get applied to a given space the space in some sense only directs their articulation for how long have you i, I don't think it's giving away a secret or anything and i think you may have mentioned it earlier that one of the pieces in baltimore deals with mirrors and the other deals with glass that uh, parts of it if not all of it is is, is somewhat or quite reflective I had not before seeing this commission uh, and a related piece um, that you recently installed in Chelsea seen you use mirrors before. Um, when did they come into the work? I think the first time I used the work was, I mean, used mirrors was in 2008. And oh, so you have used mirrors for a long time. Yeah, I used mirrors um, at a piece that I constructed in Berlin and then another piece I, I built in Basel, but those mirrors were not glass. And I think the use of glass really was kind of a large challenge in a certain way because those mirrors were made of large, uh, kind of large stretch mirror foil, which meant that the engineering of those structures was much simpler. They were very light and they also had no depth. When you looked at the foil, there was no glass through which light had to pass. Um, so it was interesting. I think the glass is a much newer development than the mirrors. Mm, mm, mm. When you're creating a work, do you think about how it looks on and indeed in the wall? Or are you pretty much entirely focused on the way the viewer will experience when standing right in front of it or right under it, looking through it or into it? I think about it both ways. Uh, and when I make a piece, I will generally make a full scale mock up both of it as a kind of a spatial condition, but also a very simple mock-up, which is mock up the geometry of it on the wall so that you understand, meaning you, the person who's looking at it, myself in that instance, really understands how the geometry, the scale of the geometry in relation to the room, the scale of the geometry in relation to the edges of the wall, how the wall becomes very important. It becomes part of the piece in a lot of ways. The Baltimore Wall in the in the in the in the piece in the contemporary wing, or fully the piece that's fully in the contemporary wing, 
the wall was built out for your piece. Um, it floats. It really is a part of the piece. I guess I ask because I'm I, I found myself thinking of so when I was not standing directly in front of or directly under the piece looking into it or through it um, I found myself standing at an angle 30 feet away thinking oh that's you know a really lovely piece of aluminum and you know from here this form reminds me of of something Bontecu-ish or from here this form reminds me of um, of something that uh, I don't know if Tony Smith had been interested in the third dimension and had had children with Gordon Matta Clark he might have thought of but maybe you don't think about kind of wall presence from 30 feet away that way. Well, I think that was something really striking for me about the West Wing piece. And I think that also had to do with what curator Kristen Heilman decided to do with the room around the piece. And one of the things that was very exciting about working in this context was that there were certain things that I had control over and there were certain things that I had no control over, although I knew about, and that had to do with the artworks that surrounded the work. And I think in some ways the work that she selected to be in conversation with the piece really shaped the associations that I brought to the work when I saw it from 30 feet away, it sort of flattened it out. So to have, Tony Smith painting directly across from it to have the Stella directly across from it or in the other room or an Ad Reinhardt directly across from it. It starts to turn it kind of black monochromeness into a very different condition. I had never thought of your work in the context of painting before, and I'm not sure I probably ever will again, but seeing that Tony Smith painting and seeing, um, and we'll have an image of that painting on, on, on the websites, certainly changed ways I thought about the piece. And conversely, with the piece downstairs between the two wings, there's been a long-term loan of a Gustav Klimt uh, 1901 Pine Forest painting that had been on that wall. And all of a sudden, I found myself thinking about flatness and depth in relation to your work because I knew the Klimt had been there for, for so many years. Um, but I don't imagine that you spend a lot of time thinking about painting. <laughs> No, but I'm, I'm, I'm very interested in the problem of painting. I actually think painting, in a funny way, talks to architecture in ways that sculpture doesn't, and at least in, in my conception of it. And it seems that architecture, in some sense, has had a very long history and conversation with painting around problems of representation, around problems of um, sort of spatial projection. And I think that's a very interesting edge, that that kind of disciplinary edge. I also very recently have been looking very closely at some of the work of John Heddick and thinking about the problem, and actually also Corbusier, thinking about the problem of how painting was so critical, and certainly in Corbusier's thinking about how space existed as a sort of color field it was it's it's kind of a fascinating uncomfortable marriage you know that's interesting because i found myself uh when i was looking at the piece in the galleries yesterday wondering about when you're working when when you're in the studio and you're working on a piece whether it's the baltimore piece or something else doesn't matter and you get stumped and you need some ideas or a new way of addressing a problem or an issue uh where do you go do you go to painting do you go to sculpture do you go look at architecture? Do you look at an engineering textbook or engineering history? It depends on what I'm stumped over, but I often will have a kind of very specific problem that I'm working on. So most recently, I've been thinking about this problem of the open edge. And I've been thinking about, strangely, how you can take a unit of space and then let's say you have a unit and a unit, and then you want to actually open the boundary, but not keep it like complete, not keep it into, not keep it a, an enclosed or complete boundary. And so one of the people who I did think of in that regard, although a totally two-dimensional problem, is Escher and thinking about how well he's dealing with these units. And I'm not talking in any way about the representational iconography in his work, but the underlying geometry, I think, is actually really fascinating and how Escher then relates to Erwin Hauer, I think as a sculptor, Hauer was also dealing with that problem of boundary. But 
I generally don't look at those sources. I'm more likely to look at either cognitive science. So for example, there was this really extraordinary essay um, recently about how doorways cause forgetting. I thought that was extremely interesting in thinking about how you would progress from space A to space B and how you have to readjust your mental condition from each within each zone. But I also, you know, I look at, I look at architecture probably most of all. Mm. I, perhaps because your two pieces at the Baltimore Museum of Art are uh, either partly in the cone wing where the great Matisses are, or, you know, five steps away. Um, I found myself thinking of Matisse's early sculpture and in his early sculpture, he's working really hard to come up with 360 degree sculpture, sculpture that is you walk around, you aren't conscious of moving from being in front of it to being behind it, that the piece is, um, is a 360 degree experience with no corners, no edges, no transitions, but that it's a, it just kind of, a, 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 as you walk around it, you kind of almost think the piece is walking with you. And I was thinking about how with your pieces, uh, there is no in front of it. There is no behind it. You you have to be ambulatory. And you, uh, in a very different multi-floor, <laughs> if you will, way, have to kind of experience it the way Matisse wanted people to to experience his sculpture. That's very interesting, the, the Matisse parallel, also because it's making me think of the problem of architecture as it's very distinct from sculpture, which is that if you're moving around something somehow, because there's no, I'm not sure quite how you'd say this even, but there's no articulated break in vision. It's like you always are able to look around it. You, you feel it as singular and, and uh, total in some ways, you you feel it as a thing, whereas a building, in some sense, because it surrounds you and because it's all about these sort of uh, stage transitions or thresholds in which you experience one, then another, then another, although that can be resequenced in all sorts of ways, architecture in and of itself, it seems like, carries that different time with it. And I think that's really a fascinating problem. Yeah, I mean, I'm thinking of Matisse's like... Um... 1908 decorative figure he did or the serpentine where uh the transitions are uh fuzzy to the point of being eliminated and in your work uh there's certainly you know walking from downstairs to upstairs or from one side of the wall to the other side of the wall but the effect the disorienting effect that the work has is transitionless it is um i'm really not saying this well it's as hard to figure out as figuring out where the side of a Matisse sculpture is. Oh, that's so interesting. Um, and it's, 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 it's really pretty remarkable. Both of your pieces at the Baltimore Museum of Art are, are built into walls. You will not, as I understand it, in the years to come, be deciding what goes on those walls next to your sculpture, even though one of your sculptures really has its own built wall. How interested are you um, in what goes on those walls next to your pieces in the future? I know you don't control it, but is that interesting to you? Are you interested that there's a Mondrian next to one of them and that there's a, uh, a day, another one's between a David Smith and an Anne Truitt? Or is that just what happens when you do a commission for an art museum? I'm so excited by the fact that there's a problem that I can be, I, that the project, that the pieces can be entangled in. I think that's totally delightful. So I love the the problem that's created by, and I don't mean problem negatively, but the kind of challenge that's created by the presence of this semi-alien element, because it changes, I'm hopeful, it changes the way people think about what else happens. And I think that's really actually very exciting to me. It It allows a dialogue, I think, also between not just my work and the work around it, but between the other works that might not otherwise be there. And I think that's so cool. It is. It was It was a lot of fun for me to see what the curators at the BMA had chosen to do for the 
uh, debut of the pieces or the debuts of the pieces. Um, and I'm already looking forward to seeing how they, they work with and against the two pieces in the years ahead. Well, Sarah Oppenheimer, thanks so much for joining me on the Modern Art Notes podcast. It's a pleasure. Thank you for having me. That's all for this week's show. The Modern Art Notes podcast is edited by Wilson Butterworth. Special thanks to Steve Roden, who created the sound for the program. The Modern Art Notes podcast is released under a Creative Commons license. Please visit Modern Art Notes for more information. Thanks for listening.